Love you, buddy. Love you. Thank you. I'm Chris's stunt double. <laughs> the knockoff cheap version of this guy, all right? Chris is the man. Uh, I love Chris. Like he said, we go way back, layers of friendship, family, all kind of stuff. Too much to explain. We take the whole sermon to work through all of that. Um, but like Chris said, 15 years ago with uh, Crosswinds being planted, um, knowing this guy since I was a teenager, don't do the math on that, all right? But knowing this guy since I was a teenager, uh, getting to pray for and hear about what God was putting on his heart before this church existed and the dream that God was birthing in him and the burden for this community and his willingness to say yes to God's call to move to this community to plant this church. And now each of you get to be a part of God's story that God is writing here in this community. So, so grateful to get to be with you this morning and to be a part of this up close a group of people, a family that I've been praying for since you started. Um, as you know, Chris is somebody who leads with character and integrity, and he is faithful to Jesus and how he is leading this church. And even as difficulty comes against him and has come against you as a church community, you're seeing the flourishing at the same time. The difficulty and the flourishing and the fruit of what God has planted in this place and what God is cultivating in this place. And so we give God glory for that, first of all. But I also want to encourage and say thank you to Pastor Chris for the way that he leads this congregation. Can we express our encouragement and love for him today? Amen. Amen. Thanks for letting me be with you, buddy. Love you, proud of you, admire you, look up to you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. All right, awesome. Wait, is that true? Huh? Tuesday? I'm not singing. <laughs> Y'all make sure you, thank you. 
Thank you. That is awesome. Y'all make sure you embarrass him and hug him and love on him. All right. Extra for his birthday. That's awesome. Money. All right. Good to know. Good to know. So he's about to be even a little bit older than me than he currently is. I like that. All right. Awesome. So good. Have y'all ever seen this guy play basketball, by the way? This dude can play ball. That's a total side note. Didn't plan on saying that. I'm leaving it alone now. But anyway, just needed to say that. All right. 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 21. We've come to the end of this book that you have been walking through together as a church family. This letter that the Apostle John is writing to this collection of churches, this network of churches that he's been giving leadership to, pouring his heart out into. And now he's writing this letter to this family of churches. And you've been walking through this as a church family together. We're coming to these concluding remarks that he is making, and you're going to hear as we read this together some of the themes that you've been hearing all the way along. You can hear him pulling them together and tying this all up here in these last words. Here's what he says, starting with verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. If anyone sees a brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, they should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Jesus, we open ourselves to your word today. We submit to your authority in everything. We give you our preemptive yes right from the beginning. We thank you that your word is clear. We thank you that you have given us understanding. We ask that you would deepen that understanding and that you would help us to respond to what we know. Give us the grace to respond to you. Give us the grace to be transformed by your love, and by your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So here we are, end of the book. 
uh, once again, you see John pulling these threads together, okay? Common themes that you've seen all the way through in this journey through this letter, you see them show up again here. And you get that right off the bat, right from the beginning, right from this first sentence when he says this, I write these things, pointing to the entire letter that he has written here, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know, there it is again, the, the title of the whole series, you see that over and over again, so that you may know that you have eternal life. All right, John gives us the purpose of his writing here at the end, repeating it again to make sure that we get this. I'm writing this so that you may know that you have eternal life. Let's take that phrase eternal life real quick and lean into that for just a few minutes here. When we use the phrase eternal life, or when we read this phrase eternal life throughout the New Testament, oftentimes our mind does this translating for us of what this word means. And oftentimes in our culture, when we hear eternal life, we translate that into the word heaven. Yeah? That's what we tend to do. That's how we tend to read it. And that makes sense. That is a part of the promise of Christianity that as followers of Jesus, we have the hope of heaven. We have the hope of eternal life with Jesus in heaven. But as we dig into the context and, and the original context of this, and you'll see this all throughout the New Testament, oftentimes when they speak of eternal life, they're not only talking about heaven. They're not only talking about then and there. They're also talking about here and now. And instead of automatically translating this word to heaven each time we read it, instead we should translate this word eternal life to a better word, Jesus. All right, Jesus. Now, why do we say eternal life equals heaven? Because John just told us that. All right, it's in the next to last uh, sentence that he gives us here in this letter. He says this, uh, the son Jesus Christ, he is the true God and he is eternal life. So John's hope for us, his deepest hope for us in this letter is that we would know eternal life or in other words, that we would know Jesus. Jesus is our hope. Yes, we have the hope of heaven. Absolutely. I'm not downplaying that at all. Okay, hear me clearly on that. But listen, imagine the greatest paradise that you could imagine heaven to be. And you remove Jesus from that. That's not heaven. That's hell. What makes heaven heaven? Jesus. All right. So Jesus is our hope of eternal life. And you see that all throughout the New Testament. You see it in the teachings of Jesus. You see it in the writings of the apostles, in the writing of the apostle Paul. You see it all over the place. Eternal life is Jesus. That is our hope. Jesus is the one who is eternal life. He has no beginning. He has no end. And it's his life within us that is transforming us. It's Jesus's life that is lived for us and is laid down for us on the cross in this sacrificial and saving death on the cross, the spilling of his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, and as Jesus's life that is raised back up again in the power of the resurrection, overcoming sin on the cross, overcoming even the power of death and the grave in the resurrection. It's Jesus's life that lives forever as the ascended king reigning over all things. That Jesus living in you, 
That is the hope. That is what John wants you to grasp. That is what John wants you to know. Better than that, that is who John wants you to know. Know Jesus. Know Jesus. That's the whole purpose of this letter. This word know is key and important here for another reason. There is this false teaching that has worked its way into the church that, and the network of churches that John is writing to. And it was beginning to split apart the church and divide the church. People were being led astray away from Jesus by this false teaching that was working its way throughout the church. You guys have probably already talked about it before, but it was known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from this Greek word gnosis. Anybody got a guess of what word in English we take from the word gnosis? No. All right. Knowledge. Okay. It was this heresy that was teaching that these people had some kind of new and secret knowledge about the reality of Jesus. What was this knowledge that they claimed to have? Number one, they claimed to know that the Jesus who appeared wasn't really Jesus in the flesh. It was just a spirit that was appearing to be a real person, not in the flesh. That's a problem for Christianity. All right, it undercuts one of the core doctrines of, in, of Christianity, which is the incarnation, which says that Jesus is fully God and fully human. That's a core part of Christianity. They're completely undercutting that. It also is a problem because it tells us that Jesus was a liar, that he was pretending to be something that he was not. The second thing that they claim to know is that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, that because he didn't have this real physical body, what people experienced and what people saw wasn't a real physical death. That's also a problem for Christianity. It undercuts one of the core doctrines of Christianity, which tells us that Jesus became one of us and gave his life for us, for the salvation from sin, for us to be brought into a reconciled relationship with God. These people are undercutting this. They're claiming to know these things. And John is saying, no, what you need to know is Jesus. And you need to know that this Jesus came to you when you had no hope of making your way to God. God came to you, stepped into our story, became one of us, lived among us, suffered like us, suffered with us, and suffered for us, giving his actual life in sacrifice on the cross to bring about our salvation. That is what you need to know, John is saying. Know Jesus. So he's pushing against this and pushing back to and reorienting this church around the core truth of the reality of who Jesus is. That is who Jesus is. This is what Christianity is about. It's about knowing Jesus. It's about growing in that relationship with Jesus. A lot of times in Christianity, we use these important theological terms that carry weight. They're important for us. Words like holiness or sanctification or spiritual growth or discipleship. All of them can be boiled down to this concept of knowing Jesus. This is what we are invited into. This is what Christianity is about. And so John is saying, this is what I need you to grasp. I've written all of this so that you might know Jesus. He is your hope. He is your life. He is what this is all about. Know Jesus. Now, there might be some people in here today who are like, I, I, I hear that. 
but I have so many things that I don't know about Jesus. How can I become a follower of Jesus when I have all of these things that I don't know about him? I have all of these questions swirling around the truth of who Jesus is. And don't these questions block the path for me becoming a follower of Jesus? And I have these questions that I feel like I need to get settled before I can say yes to Jesus. Here's the reality. Jesus is not intimidated by your questions. He loves your questions. All right, when you become a follower of Jesus, you don't just leave your questions at the door. When you become a part of this church, you don't just leave your questions at the door. The questions make the journey with you. They get to come along with you. Actually, in real faith, there is enough room for doubt. In real faith, there is enough room for doubt. Jesus says, bring it all with you. It's all going to make the journey. Jesus is not afraid of your questions. He loves your questions. In fact, your questions are actually a subtle expression of faith that says, I think you might actually be big enough to handle these questions. I think you might actually be big enough to have an answer for these. And Jesus says, bring your questions with you. There is room for questions. Jesus loved questions. Think about how Jesus taught. When Jesus was asked a question, how did he most often answer? With another question. All right, he loved that. That was a key part of his teaching. And he's a brilliant teacher. He's a genius. He's not afraid of your questions. He loves it. Bring it. Bring it with you, all right? He wants that intellectual curiosity. Bring it with you. But here's the reality for some of you today. Today is a turning point moment for some of you because you have allowed those questions to stand between you and becoming a follower of Jesus. And Jesus is saying to you today, listen, your questions get to come with you. Your questions are important. I love your questions. But today, your questions have to take a back seat to the question that I'm asking you. And I've got a question for you today. Will you follow me? Will you trust me? You're not gonna get all of your questions answered right now, and it may take you the rest of your life to work out some of them, but will you trust me anyway? Will you take that step of faith and walk with me? The questions today, some of your questions are gonna come second. And first, Jesus says, I want an answer. We'll get to your questions, but first, I want an answer. And I want a one-word answer. It's yes. It's an all-consuming, all-encompassing yes that unleashes a thousand smaller no's in our life. And Jesus says, will you follow me? That's what this boils down to. Do you want to know me? You're not going to know everything from the start. Follow me and find out. Come with me on this journey. I'm gonna take you into the depths of answers that will blow your minds and questions you haven't even thought of yet. Will you follow me? Will you trust me? I want to know you. Will you know me? Know Jesus, that's what this is all about. Before we move to this next section, I want to leave you with two challenges here from this first section. Number one, what is your next yes to Jesus? What is your next yes to Jesus? He's saying, I, I see those questions. I've got one answer that I'm looking for from you today, and that's yes. What is that in your life? 
What is your next yes to Jesus that you need to surrender to him? And second is this. Maybe you're at the beginning of this curiosity journey of finding out who Jesus is. Or maybe you're at a point in your journey where things maybe uh, have gone stale for you. And you're wondering, you're, you're pushing up against this wall and you're wanting to move to this next place of growth. For both of you, I would challenge you to do this. Read the Gospels. Read the Gospels. Do you want to know Jesus? Then walk with Jesus through the Gospels. The Gospels, the four books at the beginning of the New Testament that tell the story of the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. Read through those four Gospels. There are 89 chapters in the Gospels. So if you take one chapter a day over the next three months, you will work through every one of them. I guarantee you, I guarantee you that changes your life. Some of you today are saying, eh, no, no, Jesus, I get it, move to the next point, I already know Jesus. Then I want to challenge you to read the Gospels too and get ready to be surprised. Have you reached the end of knowing Jesus? Have you reached the fullness of all there is to know of him and about him? Read the Gospels and be surprised. I want to challenge you with that. Here's the next piece. As we move to the next uh, couple of sentences here and the next two verses of this passage, uh, first point, know Jesus. Second point, pray like Jesus. All right, pray like Jesus. Here is what John says us. This says to us, this is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Okay, a few points here. Number one, I think is absolutely beautiful and so deeply encouraging that he makes this statement, he hears us. He hears us. How many of us at times have felt invisible in our lives? And yet this is the God who sees us. Again, read through the gospels and see how Jesus sees the people that everyone else ignores and that feel invisible in that culture. He sees them and he hears them. And the same is true for us today. He hears us out of the compassion of his heart. He hears us. This is so beautiful and so deeply encouraging. And yet, let's be real and honest about something here. How many of us have had times in our lives when it feels like he doesn't hear us? Like our, our, our prayers are just kind of hitting the ceiling and going nowhere else. And he's not hearing us. Worse how many of us have had times in our lives where we think maybe he does hear me, but he just doesn't care? That's painful. That's a painful reality. And there's many of us in the room who have been through that part of our walk with Jesus. And we have wrestled through this. Whenever we come to the topic of prayer, we have to handle this carefully. And I want to celebrate the way that this church centers prayer, the way that this church emphasizes prayer. I love that, uh, of, of the continual rhythm of the prayer meeting. This church is, is known for bold prayers. And that's absolutely beautiful. And I celebrate that. And so leave that here, and I just want to take a sidestep for the people in the room who when you hear the topic of prayer come up, a wall goes up for you. Or else you remember a woundedness about a time in which you prayed for something and it did not go the way you had deeply hoped that it would go. 
I want to speak to the people in the room who have been told what you need to have is more faith. And then when it doesn't go the way you had hoped it would go, the way that you prayed it would go, you're left wondering, was it because I didn't have enough faith? So we look at actual tragedies in our lives and then we're left with this question, was that because I didn't have enough faith? No, no, that is not what John is getting at here. That is not what the full witness of the New Testament tells us about the power of prayer. It doesn't tell us that your faith is too small because it doesn't go the way you had hoped that it would go. It's not about the size or the character of your faith. It's about the object of your faith, Jesus. That's what prayer is really about. For some of you today, I wanna remind you that our faith is not in faith. We don't put our faith in faith, knowing that, man, if I just believe enough, I'm gonna be able to bend this to this outcome. No, our faith is in Jesus whom we can trust with the outcome, whom we know doesn't, I wanna be really careful here. Holy Spirit, please help us here. Jesus in his sovereignty as king has the power to redeem everything, but that does not mean he causes everything. That's not what sovereignty is about. Sovereignty means that he rules and reigns over it and he has the power to bend it towards his glory and your good. He has the power to do that. So oftentimes we'll say everything happens for a reason, but instead I think we should push back on that and say no, but everything that happens can be redeemed because of the grace of Jesus. That is possible. We see it lined out right here. He's telling us, don't put your faith in faith, put your faith in Jesus. What does he tell us? He tells us to pray according to what? According to God's will. Jesus teaches that. John's not making this up. He gets it from his teacher, Jesus, whom he was with when Jesus taught the disciples how to pray. The disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us how to pray. Jesus gives them the Lord's prayer. And there's this significant line in the Lord's prayer that says, your will be done. It's a part of how Jesus teaches us to pray. But he doesn't just say it from the comfort of a hillside surrounded by flowers and sunshine when he's teaching all of the people. He also shows us what that looks like. When else do we hear Jesus pray, your will be done? Who knows? In the Garden of Gethsemane. What's about to happen after the Garden of Gethsemane? He's gonna be arrested and taken to the cross. Facing his own crucifixion, Jesus prays, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. Not my will, your will be done. Father, let this cup pass from me. What's the cup? Crucifixion. Did that pass from Jesus? Thank God it didn't. Jesus himself knows the sting of no. But on the heels of that, he teaches us this is what prayer looks like. It's to say, but not my will, your will be 
done, to pray according to his will, to be brought into alignment with his will. There's so much for us to unpack with that. But for those of you who are struggling with the outcomes of your prayer and feel like maybe I didn't have faith enough, our faith is not in faith. Our faith is in Jesus. And we trust him. And we trust his will, not because everything happens for a reason, but that every single thing that happens can be redeemed by Jesus. And he bends it towards his glory and towards your good. You can trust him in that. I will admit that's a very long road. That's a very long road. And that's a difficult part of the journey in Christianity. Continue to pray with bold prayers. Continue to pray with deep faith, but also know our faith isn't in faith. Our faith is in Jesus, and we trust him as he teaches us how to pray, and as he walks with us, teaching us over the rest of our lives what it looks like to pray and to learn from him in his school of prayer. There's, a, there's an old scholar that I appreciate a lot. His name is William Barclay. He says this, here indeed is something on which to ponder, We are so apt to think that prayer is asking God for what we want. To think that prayer is asking God for what we want. Whereas true prayer is asking God for what he wants. That's coming into alignment. And saying, not my will, but your will be done. We're going to move forward a little bit through the passage here, and we're going to get to this part uh, in, in chapter 5, verse 18, where it says this, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin, but the one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. Chris talked about our connection all of these years back. At the same time that Crosswinds was being planted here in Leland, uh, I was a part of a church planting team in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Any Tar Hill fans in the house? Woo! Yeah, any Duke fans? All right, the altar is open. You can come and pray. All right? I'm just kidding, Duke fans. Hey, nowhere in the Bible does it say God cares about who wins the basketball game, okay? But it does say that God will crush the devil with his heel. So there's, there's something to that, right? All right. That's right. That's right. I'm sorry about that. All right. But being a part of this church community there in Chapel Hill, uh, really interesting and eclectic and beautiful group of people who taught me so much about what it looks like to follow Jesus. About 30% of our congregation uh, was made up of college students from the University of North Carolina, then a lot of young families, a lot of professionals and academics from the university, and then about 10 to 15% of the population of our church was made up of men and women who were experiencing homelessness. We met in the downtown section of the, of the town, so a lot of people uh, from, from downtown, from the street, would come and became a part of our church family. We always said we don't have a college ministry, and we didn't have a homeless ministry. We had a church family where every person found a place to belong and to lead and to serve. 
I learned so much from these men and women who were experiencing homelessness. Probably far more than I taught them. I learned so much about the character of Jesus. There was one gentleman, his name was Taz, uh, which was short for Tasmanian devil, okay? That's how he got that nickname. His name was Taz. And uh, you never knew what you were going to get with Taz. It was always a surprise with this guy, okay? Uh, He would interrupt me in the middle of the sermons. Uh, He would come into the service, shall I say, under the influence and not of the Holy Spirit, okay? Uh, I'm not going to say he was drunk all the time, but about three-thirds of the time that he showed up, he was probably drunk, okay? Math humor, all right? Um, So he would interrupt me. He would make the sermons like these interactive uh, engagements, okay? Uh, One day, we got the sad news that Taz had passed away. And so as his church community, we gathered together and we had a memorial service for Taz and we laughed and we cried and we laughed again the next day when we found out he wasn't actually dead. (laughs) Someone should have Googled something. All right. Yes. We had a resurrection in our church. (laughs) So from then on, his nickname was Tazarus. All right. There was another guy named Silas, and uh, Silas, similar situation. Silas had been in uh, in addiction and in the cycle of addiction even to the point of selling drugs. Uh, But he was making some changes in his life. He was experiencing what redemption looks like and a complete turnaround in his life. I'll never forget the day that I called Silas's phone when I got his voicemail. And it said this, he said, You've reached Silas's phone. I'm making some changes in my life. So if I'm not answering your call, you might be one of those changes. (laughs) Yeah, come on. And I was like, why isn't he answering my call? (laughs) That's different. But there's something about that that just lodged in my brain. I'll never be able to forget that. You might be one of those changes. And over and over again, that keeps coming back to me. This journey of Christianity is about changed people, and you might be one of those changes. This is a journey of transformation, of experiencing the change that happens through the grace and the redeeming love of Jesus. And you might be one of those changes. How far can the grace of God go in your life? Is there any limit to how far the grace of God can go in your life? Which is stronger, your sin or God's grace? Give an answer. What do you answer? God's grace. We agree on that. We believe that. And the whole witness of the New Testament speaks to that reality and preaches that truth. This is what John is saying here when he says we don't continue in this pattern of sin. We have a new life. We have been redeemed. Not only forgiveness of sin through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, but freedom from the power of sin in our lives through his victorious resurrection from the dead. That's the full scope of the full story of the full hope of Jesus Christ. This is what happens when we continue to move more and more into this life of knowing Jesus, when we surrender to Jesus, this real change that happens in our lives. 
Imagine you're standing on the edge of a, of a two-way street. Look one way down the road, and this is the way of sin. Do you know any people in your life who seem to just continually walk further and further and further down that road? They come up after decision after decision after decision, and they choose sin. First, they're tempted by sin, and they fall into that temptation, but then it seems like it's not even just a temptation. Now it's just a choice. Now it's just a pattern. Now it's just the way that they go. They continue to choose sin over and over and over again, and it becomes the pattern of their lives until it seems as if they're not just choosing sin, but now they're being controlled by sin. Now they're being ruled by sin. Now it seems like sin has swallowed them up whole. Raise your hand if you know somebody like that. Okay. Don't say the name. Just raise your hand. Yeah. Okay. It's real. It's part of the reality of the world in which we live. John lays this out. This reality. Now look down the other way down the road. Is there anybody in your life that you can think of who seems like as they follow Jesus... They come up against temptation to sin. They never escape. You you, you never outgrow temptation to sin. You never outgrow the reality of the brokenness of the world that we live in. John says that very plainly. But it seems like time after time after time, grace wins in their life. Have you seen that? Where they come up against a moment of decision and in surrender to Jesus, they choose Jesus. They're empowered, by the, not by their own works, not by their own strength. We're not going there at all. I'm not talking about that. It's through the grace of Jesus, by grace alone, in Christ alone, okay? But they choose Jesus and they walk with Jesus. And it seems like they're moving deeper and deeper and deeper into the reality of a life with Jesus. Until it seems like it's not just that they're choosing grace. It's, it's like, are they controlled by grace? <laughs> Are these people ruled by the grace of Jesus? Are these people swallowed up whole by the grace of Jesus? Do you know anybody like that in your life? I know a few. They're few and far between. But that's the reality of what Jesus promises. Not just forgiveness from our sin through the cross, but freedom from our sin. He breaks the chains of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. There is the hope of freedom in Jesus Christ. That's a reality. The great poet Maya Angelou, I came across this quote recently and it just has stuck with me. She said this, the need for change bulldozed a road down the center of my mind. Talking about this pivotal moment, the need for change bulldozed a road down the center of my mind. Which way are you going to walk down that road? Will you know Jesus? Lean into this relationship with Jesus. Surrender to Jesus. Until eventually, your entire life becomes love of Jesus. The last piece that we see here is what John says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, this is the last line, and then it just cuts off, right? And when you read it all together, it just seems a little disjointed and a little bit of an odd way to end a letter, okay? Imagine signing off a letter. Your next work email, sign it off that way, okay? <laughs> Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. It seems weird. But it's completely in line with everything he's been saying in the book. 
Why? Okay, if we were to distill the entire book into two words, we could describe it as know Jesus. If we distilled it down into one word, we could choose the word love. How often has he said this over and over again? Love, right? And not just in an emotional kind of way. We understand that's a complicated term in our culture, right? It's come to mean anything, so now it means nothing at all. We get that. But we're not gonna sacrifice that word. It's one of the first words that people think of when they think of Jesus. We're not gonna give that word away. We define that word by Jesus. John tells us that in this, in this letter. This is how we know what love is. And he speaks of Jesus. The opposite of idolatry is love. Idolatry, we think of it oftentimes as, okay, you've got like a little idol that you're praying to and a shrine in the corner. No, that's not what biblical idolatry is. Idolatry is nothing more than misplaced trust and misdirected love. So when John is signing off the letter this way, he's saying, remember, love Jesus. Anything else is misplaced trust and misdirected love. Don't settle for the counterfeit of an idol. Keep your heart set on the real thing. I'm writing all of this so that you might know Jesus and so that you might be transformed by his love. As John says in this letter, we love, why? Because he first loved us, changed by the love of Jesus and then that love working its way out through us. John also says that you cannot claim to know God and hate your brother or sister. If you love God, that will create a love for others in you. The great theologian Martin Luther defines sin as the heart curved inward on itself. One of my favorite theologians, John Wesley, defined holiness in the opposite direction as the, love turned, as the heart turned outward in love of God and love of others, clearly drawing from Jesus' great commandment. That's what it looks like. And to know Jesus leads us into that life until our heart is opened and curved outward, and that becomes the natural bend of our lives. Loving him with all that we are and all that we have, and loving our neighbors in the same reckless and ridiculous kind of way. As we close, we invite the team to come back, the worship team. And we wanna give you an opportunity to respond this morning. Is there something that the Holy Spirit has pressed in your heart this morning that he's inviting you to respond to? Maybe it's that question of what your next yes is. Is there a place that needs to be surrendered to Jesus that the Holy Spirit has illuminated in this time together? The next room in the house where he's wanting to do renovations. The next place of change that he's taking you to. Maybe that road opened up in your mind and you see the need for change and you want to respond and say yes. Maybe for some of you it's saying yes for the very first time to become a follower of Jesus. Maybe others it's saying, Jesus, there's something about my heart where I have felt it curve inward again and I seem to be focused on myself and it seems to be caving inward. Will you once again take my heart and cur curve it outward in holy love for you and for others around me? However you feel the Holy Spirit is prompting you to respond, this is open. Jesus, thank you for your people. 
Thank you for Crosswinds Church. Thank you for the leaders who make up this church. Thank you for its impact in this community. And I pray that they would be marked as people who know you, who walk with you, who are surrendered to you, and above all, who love you in such a compelling way that that love will not stay put inside them, but it works its way out into this community. And the people in this community experience it through you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.